Hey everyone, welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I'm your host, Russ Bankson, and after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by co-host Alex Wong to recap and walk through all the major talking points of this documentary series. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Soul Savvy team for giving Alex and I this space to chat about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, please check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. Okay, so episode eight, we're getting, we're getting dangerously close to the end here. You know, we, we rejoin the 97-98 playoffs already in progress. The Bulls have vanquished the valiant New Jersey Nets in three games and have moved on to play the Charlotte Hornets, who, much like the Orlando Magic, feature a familiar face in B.J. Armstrong. You know, again, not much chance is given to the Hornets here, and the Bulls come in and predictably stomp them out in game one. They win by 13 in a wonderfully 90s 83-70 to 70 score. You know, before B.J., who clearly has some inside knowledge of how the Bulls operate, has an idea for game two. And uh, things go good and then things go bad. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I like to just imagine BJ Armstrong like going around handing out this like folder of insider information. And Glenn Rice is just like, what am I supposed to do with this? I just shoot threes, <laughs> bro. So B, yeah, BJ has this huge game too. And they show this last shot that he has in the, in the final seconds to really put the game away, and he yells at the Bulls bench. And, it, you know, uh, we will obviously dive into the specifics of this episode, but this episode really focuses on Michael's competitive edge that he keeps seeking out throughout his career and, and, and where he draws those motivations from. And, you know, present day Michael says clearly before the credits hit that, you know, for the rest of the series, that was my motivation. Like once BJ did that, like it was over for the Hornets. And we cut straight to uh, the infamous LeBradford Smith story from 1993. It's, uh, it's interesting because to go back to that, you know, that game two against Charlotte, the Bulls lose 78 to 76. Again, we have like, you know, Eastern Conference playoff scores in the late 90s were basically halftime scores now. Like, it's kind of amazing how different the game was back then and how much they were just, you know, defensive slugfests um, that you probably wouldn't necessarily want to rewatch at this point. But yeah, I mean, we, we cut from Jordan saying he's got to go out and destroy B.J. Armstrong with some sense of like, oh, well, so sorry I have to do this you know, to him destroying poor LeBradford Smith. And LeBradford Smith is a name that, you know, David Aldridge brings up being DC media because it's someone that if you weren't a Bullets fan in the 90s, you probably have no idea who LeBradford Smith even is. And LeBradford Smith basically plays the game of his life against Jordan in Chicago and goes out and scores 37 points in a game that the Bulls won, they didn't even lose. This one guy, you know, has a great game in a loss. Normal people would be able to let that go. Michael Jordan, as we've learned through the seven prior episodes, not normal people. I mean, you know, what was your thought going through this? I mean, I had definitely heard the LeBradford Smith story before, but 
you know, yeah. it's just, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, first of all, Russ, you wouldn't understand because you've never won anything. Like, <laughs> let's just true. establish that. Very right? true. Um, number one, I, I've heard this story before too, and I had no idea that the Bulls won that first game when LeBradford scored 37 points. And obviously the story is that apparently on his way out of the gym, he, he tells Mike, hey, nice game, Mike. And, and they play the next night on a back-to-back in Washington, and Michael tells all his teammates that he's going to score what LeBradford Smith had the previous night in the first half. And he almost does, right? 36 points in the first yeah. half, ends with 47 points. I didn't know that like decades later, uh, Michael Wilbon tells a story that a bunch of writers went up to Michael to ask him about the story and Michael basically says that he made it up. Like, LeBradford Smith never said that. And we're going to see a lot of examples of it in this episode. At some point, you know, I think when you're talking about the slights that he felt from Jerry Krause when he was hyping up Tony Kukoc before he even came to the NBA, some of those slights I do understand. Or when he went against Danny Ainge or Dan Marley uh, in the in the playoffs, in the finals. But... When you talk about this, like, LeBradford Smith example, at some point I'm just like, shouldn't Michael just be motivated enough to, like, you know, average 40 points a night, win a championship, 3P? Like, shouldn't that be enough? You would think so. And, like, you know, I've been thinking about this, and, and especially in the case of LeBradford Smith and in the case of BJ Armstrong, I mean, this is a lion coming up with reasons why he needs to eat the antelope rather than just, like, dog, just do it. Like, this is just what you do. You don't need to go out and murder this poor guy who has like never done anything in his life and will probably never play a game that well again. Like, can you let these guys have their moment? You're probably going to win the game slash series regardless. There's no real need to make it personal. Yeah. And once again, I go back to the fact that the Bulls didn't even lose that game. So I don't know what Michael was so upset about. And also, what does it say about Michael that he made this whole thing up? Right. And it's like, also, it's what, the 1993 Washington Bullets? Like, they weren't a threat. There was nothing they were going to do that was going to come back to haunt you. You're not going to play them in the playoffs. You're not making a statement to, like, just, you know, just in case down the road to demoralize him. Like, this is a dude who came in and had the game of his life against you. Like, you can't even let that go. Like, that, yeah, it's definitely a little crazy. And I will say, I was shocked that we're opening episode eight of this series with so much airtime about the Charlotte Hornets series and especially the BJ Armstrong thing. Like it just, I didn't feel the weight of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, again, like it was an inevitability, like the Charlotte Hornets were just a, a, a bump in the road on the way to where they were going, whether that was, you know, getting revenge on someone or like winning a championship which at that point was supposed to be the only goal. You know, I guess that was a way to stay interested. You know, Charles Barkley always talked about how the regular season didn't matter. Like maybe for the Bulls, the the Eastern playoffs barely mattered and you needed to get up for this stuff. You know, and then we cut to what was one of my favorite scenes in this episode and one of my favorite scenes in the entire documentary. You know, Michael Jordan in a back room, trainer's room with a baseball bat and a lit cigar talking to Ron Harper about the series and you know him talking about how if uh it's easy to talk trash when you're up like let's see him talk trash when the score is even or when you're behind and I mean come on man no one's going to talk trash to Michael Jordan when they're losing you know he's sort of working on his swing 
He's smoking a cigar, which made me wonder, like, what time was that? Like, when, when is this happening? They don't really tell you that. Like, you know, which makes me think of kind of how NBA locker rooms are a little bit like Vegas casinos, where there's, like, apparently no clock and no windows. So it's just always cigar time, I guess. Yeah, and that locker room was just huge because he was able to stretch out, and I think he was wearing his, like, Jordan 13s. And I love the, the menacing, like, um, just the fake – hitting of the bat that he was doing. Like, it just seemed like he was ready to smash something. Um, and, and we get to the rest of the Hornet series, which, like I mentioned, there's really not much drama for, for the rest of the series, right? The Hornets won that game too, and the Bulls just go and take the next two in Charlotte, and there's footage of MJ just putting the clamps on BJ Armstrong on the perimeter in game three. He's basically a non-factor. Quick shout-out to the Hornets court. Uh, that was one of the most beautiful courts in the 90s and I also like the shot there was a shot of Michael in practice reading a newspaper headline about BJ I, I don't know what it is Russ about um I, I love those you know those post championship shots when the guys are on the airplane like reading mm-hmm. the championship newspaper like something yeah. about those shots are th- those are just so iconic to me every time I see one and there's certainly something about them looking at an actual newspaper rather than just scrolling through their Twitter feed which would definitely not be the same I also fully appreciated Glenn Rice's sort of cameo appearance in this episode and sort of being the world weary, like, BJ, what did you do? Like, we were going to lose anyway, but you just kind of assured that we were going to get murdered. So, you know, you kind of, you kind of felt for Glenn Rice in that moment. Yeah, we almost, I mean, people who know about the history between Glenn Rice and Sarah Palin, you know, we almost could have ran up another presidential counter on this. And not to get away from the Sarah Palin moment, but... You know, then you have Jordan also being like saying, I think BJ forgot what drives us. And it's like, no, BJ's a human being. He had a great game. He wanted to celebrate. Like, you're the psychopath who doesn't let anyone else do this. Like, I just yeah, I just don't know what BJ was supposed to do. Like, he has a great game against his former team. He hits what, you know, sort of proves to be like the game winner, if not the the actual game winner. And what, he's supposed to say, like, thank you, Michael, for letting me play on the same court as you? Like, he's psychotic. Yeah, at certain points in this episode, that competitiveness and and the things that he says, there's definitely a huge disconnect from just the reality of it, right? Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that Hornet series. That was basically it for me. And then we go to March 1995 when baseball is on strike, and replacement baseball players are in spring training and Michael doesn't cross the picket line. So he walks out of White Sox camp and he's starting to plot his return to basketball. He grabs breakfast with BJ and this is the first time that he shows up to the practice facility. And it's again, Judd Bushler, another great cameo talking about how there was just a different feeling in the locker room. And Ron Harper apparently tells him, listen, the man is here. And there's a lot of speculation about Michael's return. You know, this period is very familiar to me because this is really like 94, 95 when I really started to watch basketball uh, as a 9, 10-year-old. So I remember a lot of this vividly and just the buzz behind the fact that Michael was going to return. And it felt like it was so soon uh, after he retired, even though it was 18 months. Yeah, it it did feel like it wasn't that long. And like, you know, obviously you had the build-up to it, that famous moment with Scottie Pippen wearing Jordan 10s in the game and pointing to the souls and saying, come on. You know, I, I think people were, he had been away long enough that the other guys in the Bulls were ready for him to come back. And 
you know, sort of let the the circus start up again. You know, I do love the sort of split between Charlotte BJ, who got destroyed for daring show emotions, compared to like Jordan calling BJ to go with him to practice and then BJ and him apparently playing one-on-one at that practice, which I would love to see footage of since BJ was arguably in his prime then and Jordan was literally just coming back to baseball. I'm curious like how that game went, you know, and then the buildup to the famous facts, the two word I'm back, which apparently was a late draft after David Falk tried to write something up, which I thought was great. Falk finally being like, you do it then. And it's two words. Yeah, I think David Falk's got to release those original versions. Uh, I want to see if they're in Comic Sans, like when Dan <laughs> Gilbert wrote his letter. Um, I oh, want to see if he Falk wrote. I want to see if Falk wrote maybe just like a complete long form piece, and Mike is just like, "Come on, man!" Like nobody's reading like a nine page fax, uh, which includes all my stats. Like, like it probably is one of those PR releases, you know, the PR emails that we usually get. Um, so yeah, no, the the I'm back was iconic and. We go to Michael returning. And I think the one thing we should mention about that Bulls team is that on the last episode, we talked about how the previous season without Michael, they had won 55 games and, you know, really kind of just forged ahead and we're still a contender. Um, this was not it for the Bulls this season. You know, they, they had some roster turnover. Horace Grant was in Orlando now. And, you know, if I have it correct, I believe when, by the time Michael came back, they were pretty much just a 500 team. I think they were like 34 and 31. Yeah, they were they were they were mediocre. I mean, Steve Kerr came out and said we were kind of a mess that year, you know. And I, I think that was important to sort of show that he wasn't coming to the team that had barely lost to the Knicks and like, you know, a, a thing that they never showed from that series, which I really wish they did. Scottie Pippen and I found this out a bit later when I was at Slam and looking at photos obsessively. He sharpied four Pete on the outer heels of his shoes during that playoff run. So like they still believed in themselves, you know, and I think this 94, 95 team was kind of like becoming something new, you know, like I said, Grant was gone, you know, they, they were still like figuring things out, but Jordan was still Jordan, you know, as evidenced by Bill Wennington in this clip saying that like Jordan said, uh, I want you to jump on the Cape, but you need to hold on. Like Mike still saw himself as this superhero, which I mean, he wasn't entirely wrong, but it would take him a okay, like a game <laughs> to figure things out. No, it really didn't take long. So there's you know, we, we get his return in Indiana against the Pacers, and he's wearing the number forty five. And, you know, George Kohler remembers how Michael's really emotional on the day of the game because, you know, obviously he hadn't played basketball in so long, but this was the first time that he was gonna play basketball after his dad had passed away he's seven for 28 in that game i forgot that he wore his shorts backwards the the backward shorts was incredible i'd forgotten about that too i mean that to me is definitely a sign of nerves because jordan was a guy who was always super meticulous about his appearance you know whether it be on court or off i know that's hard to believe for people who only know baggy jeans mike but yeah he always made sure he was together I, i i don't know like that's the biggest sign that he was still distracted by the loss of his father and like finally coming back. Like I also don't know how no one pointed it out unless his teammates were so scared of him. They were just like, Oh, Mike must be wearing his shorts backwards on purpose. I'm almost more surprised that all of his teammates didn't put their shorts on backwards too. Just being like, this is just how it is now, I guess. This is like the, this is like the old version, the OG version of LeBron making all his teammates wear suits. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> and they're just like, all right. And then they just started cutting them up as the playoffs went on. But anyways, that's and, a separate like, story. You know, meanwhile, like, I wonder also, like, and it, his teammates touched on a little bit. They had, you had Kerr saying it was like the finals. But I wonder how his younger teammates felt, you know, where it's like, here's this first game he has back. It's an NBC game. You know, Costas is announcing it. You have all the scalpers out front. Like, it's a packed house. It must have felt so different than their previous earlier games that season. Yeah, and for it to happen with, like, 17, 18 games left, in the regular season must have been such a huge adjustment for some of the guys. And you mentioned the scalpers. So I do want to mention one scalper was selling a ticket for $150 to the game, which I looked up adjusted for inflation. That's only about 250 bucks today. Um, Not a bad price to go see Michael's first game back. No, not bad at all. You could obviously sell that ticket now for a lot more than that. So, you know, they lose the game. Reggie Miller is the, the two guard hero of it which is foreshadowing, I suppose, for 1998. You know, and then less than a week later, they play in Atlanta, and Mike just goes the length of the court and hits the game winner. First of all, like, yo, Hawks, get the ball out of his hands. What are you doing? Yeah, surprised they didn't play another Outcast song for that. And, and then shortly after, Michael has his famous double nickel game, 55 points at Madison Square Garden. And I think we both laughed at this because present day Patrick Ewing remembers that he had a great game as well, but of course nobody cared. And I looked up the box score, right? 36 points, seven rebounds, three steals, four blocks. But unfortunately, Patrick, especially in this Michael Jordan production, they're not going to talk about you. Right. I mean, which is good. Like at least Patrick brought it up. You know, I looked it up too. So Patrick Ewing, if you're listening to this, you know, you got your message across. We checked your line. Also, Patrick went to the line 23 times that game, which was both a tribute to Michael Jordan, apparently, and uh, a sign that he was going to the basket a lot. I did enjoy the highlights of that game. Uh, I think we talked about this before recording, but Michael was still in baseball shape. He wasn't nearly in basketball shape yet and wouldn't be until the following season. But during that game, I mean, he just roasted poor John Starks like his basketball timing at least for that game against the Knicks looked fine to me and this was a game that if I remember correctly Bill Wennington famously said that him and Michael combined for 57 points right because he had that one key basket Bill Wennington had one basket in that game and it was with the game on the line Jordan the defense collapses on him he fires a pass into Wennington who dunks it and uh you know it might be hard to imagine watching uh you know bill wennington now and his walks around places and you know just being sort of harley davidson bill but bill was athletic back then like it shouldn't it shouldn't be a surprise watching him dunk on people because he he definitely did that bill was bill was something um i remember watching that game in my apartment in wilmington delaware on a tiny like you know 15 inch color tv and being shocked like how good he was already. You know, I, I think there was definitely some concern with him coming back after such a long layoff. And, you know, that game was just like, oh my God, like he's very much still Michael Jordan. Yeah, I, I remember watching those games because that would have been probably the NBA on, on NBC era. And it was just a spectacle because for someone like me who was like nine, you obviously heard about Jordan, the three P you knew about the shoes and now you got to watch him. I remember how weird it was seeing him wearing the 45, just like it just didn't feel like it was the right version 
uh, of Jordan. And before we even get to that second round series against the Orlando Magic, I, I know it's Michael, and, and I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but I still feel like we should give him a lot of credit, and, and you mentioned this, of just how quickly he was able to just get back on the court and just start dominating people. So he played 17 regular season games in 94-95, and he averaged 26.9 points, 6.9 rebounds, and 5.3 assists. And probably the only thing you can point to about him still needing time to adjust back was that he only shot 41% from the field. Yeah, and, and that's that's understandable. I mean, you watch that in the in the highlights from that Indiana game. Like, his shot was definitely off. Like, he had to f- find his range all over again. I think, you know, by the end of games, he would start to lose something on it, obviously as evidenced by that Orlando series. You know, he was still working his way into shape and still putting up Hall of Fame numbers, which is absurd. It's also interesting how forty five that 45 jersey kind of became iconic in its own right. You know, you get, like, the Jay-Z lyric, obviously. And he only wore it for 20-something games. Yeah, so we get to the second round of the playoffs, and it's the Magic, and this is the Shaq Penny Magic with, of course, former Bull Horace Grant and Nick Anderson, who who doesn't know that he's about three weeks away from shooting those four free free throws. Hey, this was the peak of Nick Anderson's career, game one. The Bulls are up one with 20 seconds left. Nick Anderson with the key steal. He strips Michael. Horace gets the fast break dunk. And then Michael turns it over on the next possession on a pass to Scotty. And this is where Nick Anderson famously said that, you know, 45 isn't 23. Before I I throw it to you, my my favorite thing about this is how present-day Horace Grant was like, oh, man, like when I heard that, I knew that uh, Nick shouldn't have said anything. Meanwhile, spoiler, like when you guys win the series in game six, you let your teammates hoist you off the court in Chicago. I mean, look, like Horace, Horace had to want that. Like that must have been the, the biggest moment short of his championships of his life, you know, where it's like you left Chicago as a free agent. You got vilified in Chicago by your ex-teammates, by the media, by, the, by Krause probably, you know, and you come in and beat them in their own building. Like, I mean, if you're not going to celebrate that, you're not going to celebrate anything. And I think like, you know, with the BJ Armstrong corollary, like you're going to piss Mike off no matter what you do. So you might as well enjoy it. But I just wonder how much hinged on that one game, because you brought up, you know, Nick Anderson missing four free throws at the end of game one in the, in the NBA finals. And they go on to get swept. You know, if Jordan keeps his dribble or if Jordan passes it up court, because they're up one, there's 10 seconds left in the game. All you need to do is like hit your free throws, guard, keep the ball and make your free throws. If they win that first game, does that demoralize that young magic squad to the point where they lose the series? And if the bulls beat the magic in that series, you know, do they go on to win a title that year? Because, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're get, I'm getting ahead of myself with this, but you know, Jordan was tired. Yes but also playing himself into basketball shape. So if they win that game one, I don't know if that whole series doesn't turn out a little bit different. My other favorite moment of that is that Nick Anderson, as a hand-picked guy by Jordan to wear Air Jordans, is the one who rips them. You know, Jordan's coming up court in his brand-new Concord 11s that no one had seen yet, and here comes Nick Anderson in his 10s and rips them. It's crazy watching Jordan have such – bad control over a ball at such a key moment like it was just so it's so jarring it was jarring then clearly like the best player in the world gets his handle ripped 
And, uh, you know, that comes up in that episode. But, I mean, it's just something you never imagine. And then for Horace Grant, of all people, to get the run out dunk. Yeah, and, you know, I don't think we can emphasize that enough because obviously we know that the Bulls, after losing that series, come back and win three championships. But when you're watching that at the time, like you literally felt like that, hey, this is really not the same Michael. And, you know, the Bulls are, you know, maybe not going to ever get back to that championship level again. And obviously anybody who thought that at the time, you know, nine-year-old me was very wrong. And, you know, it's funny, there's so much talk about Michael's fatigue and not having his legs and getting back into the basketball shape, which, you know, I agree with. But I pulled up this, the stats from that Orlando series. He plays 42 minutes a game. He averages 31 points, six and a half rebounds, 3.7 assists, 2.5 steals, almost two blocks, and he shoots 47% from the field. Like, that's pretty vintage Michael. Yeah. I mean, and again, like, you know, bumping up his numbers when it counted and playing better in the playoffs. Um, you know, he came out in game two after Nick Anderson said what he said, which was kind of dumb, um, wearing number 23 and has 38 points in game two. I mean, they win game two. You know, it just they just couldn't sustain it. And I think part of it was Jordan still being in baseball shape a little bit. And part of it was probably his teammates not being used to playing with him in the case of like guys like Pippen, just because they haven't in a while. And in some cases they hadn't played with him at all. So, you know, I know, I remember when that series ended thinking like, man, maybe he's just not going to be the same again. And uh, obviously if we've learned anything from the first seven episodes of this is Michael Jordan likes nothing else than someone implying that he might not be able to do something because he went into that summer and we get it from Tim Grover in this episode, right? Like Tim talked about how Jordan always took some time off after his season's over. He comes up to Jordan after that series ends and is like, well, you know, I'll see you whenever you want to do this. And Mike's like, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. You know, Tim Grover, hope he was billing by the hour, man. He must've made a great living. Tim, in the Tim 90s. did all right for himself. Tim definitely yeah. did all right for himself. Um, and this is the part where, you know, Michael goes and films Space Jam in the summer after they lose to the Orlando Magic and they build this whole Jordan Dome for him where his schedule is he starts filming at 7 a.m. He gets a two-hour break where he would work out with Tim Grover and then he would finish filming at around 7 p.m. And that's when a bunch of NBA guys, college guys, basically anyone w- would be invited to come and show up for these pickup games and you know we see in the footage the guys include Juwan Howard, Reggie Miller, Dennis Rodman, Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, Sean Bradley. Um, obviously some of the guys were in the movie. I would have loved to see more of this and you know I, I think you remember you know I, I wrote an oral history of the 96 Bulls for your former employer complex and you're actually the only one that has Russ the unreleased like 8,000 word version because I remember <laughs> when it came out you asked me for like the version that with all the quotes that wasn't cut because I had interviewed yeah, a bunch yeah. of people and this was my favorite part of doing that story was interviewing people like Charles Oakley who was there talking about these Jordan Dome runs I, I really wish this part we, we could have expanded on a little bit yeah I think like the Jordan Dome runs were basically the 19 19- you know, 95 equivalent of those Monte Carlo dream team runs, um, maybe with not quite the same uh, level of talent. Although, you know, we do get some tantalizing bits in this of like 
there's one brief moment when Dennis Rodman inbounds the ball to Jordan. And it's just like, I don't know, like they don't talk about it. And that's what annoys me a little bit where it's like, you had all this talk of how Krauss didn't necessarily want Rodman and he had to be talked into it. But like, where's the moment with Jordan saying like, Hey, we played together in the summer, you know, like we had these moments where it worked. Like, so why not bring him in? I refuse to believe that never came up when the bulls talked about acquiring him, you know, or even Juwan Howard, like still relatively young back then. And I think Antoine Walker might've played in some of those games too. I think you had a mix of like Chicago guys and LA guys, which makes me wonder if magic Johnson ever showed up because same thing, like that was the summer before magic made his comeback with the Lakers as a then six, nine, <laughs> 300 or 280 pound power forward. You know, I know there were always runs at UCLA that Magic took part in, but you'd think he probably came to those. So yeah, I mean, a little bit more of a deep dive into that would have been nice. We did get the brief cameo appearance by Joe Pitka, Space Jam director, who looked like he might have played guitar in the Eagles at some point. Yeah, I, you could have a whole 10-part documentary just about the Space Jam summer. Yeah, I'm going to hit up Joe Pitka, see if he has any vintage Grateful Dead tees. He seems like the connect for that. I also um, did enjoy Reggie Miller current day interview and his quote, which was probably my favorite quote of the episode, just saying like about the hours Jordan kept and saying, this dude was a vampire for real. <laughs> it was very like, Oh yeah. Reggie Miller's from California. Actually my favorite thing from that, the Reggie quote was great. And I think it was BJ Armstrong talking about how him and Michael would start taking notes. Right. Yeah, scouting guys out. Yeah, scouting guys. guys. Once again, man, BJ Armstrong's just walking around with these dossiers. Also, also, and I'm sure you noticed this, and I'm sure you were as into it as I am as a a gear person. Michael Jordan rocking the get paid shirt. (laughs) I'm sure that's been reprinted over the years, but like watching that, I was like, damn, I need to track down one of those. Yeah, that 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 was a great fit when he was balling. So we get to the summer ends and the 95-96 season begins and Michael's talking about how at training camp, you know, it's a new roster, right? Scotty is the only leftover at this point from the first three-peat. And again, I don't agree with Mike when he says that a lot of these younger guys like Luke Longley or maybe even Steve Kerr think that because they're playing for the Chicago Bulls that, you know, they're responsible for those banners that are hanging I'm pretty sure Luke Longley didn't walk in and think that, you know, he was part of the first three beat bulls. And obviously this gets to the whole Michael Jordan punching Steve Kerr incident. And I will say, I mean, this, I feel like this is the, like the most told Michael Jordan story of all time at this point. And my, my favorite part of it is so Michael punches Kerr and then he's driving home and he calls the practice facility and says, please give me Steve Kerr's number. It's like, if you want, if leadership, if you want to be the leader, maybe get the number of the guy. <laughs> and this, it's, it's all, you know, the, the prelude to this is Kerr talking about Jordan coming into camp that year, like frothing at the mouth, which I took literally. I figure Mike was probably literally like rabid dog in camp, you know, and is already angry and probably wants to play the magic in the playoffs. Like, when training camp starts, I'm sure he had no interest in going through the regular season. Like he just wants to get vengeance, but I think it's interesting too, the way Kerr talked about it. And it, you kind of forget like, yeah, sure. Like Steve Kerr is a little guy, but 
these guys are all NBA players. They're all professional athletes. They all fought through things to get where they are. And in the case of Kerr, a six foot, you know, not your traditional, like he had to fight even harder for a spot than someone like Jordan would have. So I'm not sure what Jordan expected. He clearly didn't expect Steve Kerr to punch him first. But yeah, I mean, you you get at least this brief glance is like, oh yeah, to be one of the 200 odd, 300 NBA players, you need to be, have a little bit of grit in you. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, because we're time jumping so much, but if you think about the footage that we've seen now from the 97-98 season that we talked about on the previous episode, Michael, even though present-day Michael talks about how he, how he regret picking on the littlest guy in practice and how it made him feel really small, it's not like Michael really learned anything from that, right? Like he oh, no. just kept no. on picking on his teammates in the same way under the guys, or not the guys, I mean, I'll give him credit for it, but to him, this was his leadership method, right? I mean, I think what we get from, you know, at the end of episode seven even is like 57-year-old Michael Jordan didn't learn anything from anything. I mean, he just is the guy he is. And like, if you can't deal with it, that's your problem. You know, I mean, we we do get the, the sort of split moment with that where it's like, Kerr says like, yeah, I stood up to him and like our relationship got better. And Jordan says, like, yeah, you earn my, earn my respect by standing up to me. And it's like, it was kind of always on you, you know? And, like, as much pressure as Michael Jordan put on himself, the amount of pressure he put on his teammates, it's like, basically, his attitude was, you can stand up to me, and maybe I'll respect you after that, or you can quit. That's pretty much it. Like, I'm not changing for you. You're changing for me, which is harsh. And, yeah, like, it paid off in titles for these guys, but – there are still scars, both literal and in Kerr and Purdue's case, possibly physical, you know, and did it work? Sure. I mean, we jump into the 96, 97 season and they mentioned at one point that they started the season winning 23 of their first 25 games, which is absurd. And we get the Judd Bushler moment, which I love of him talking about Scotty on the plane, looking at the schedule, being like, we're not going to lose a game for like three months. I mean, they go out and have the best record in NBA history. So yeah, it was a great, uh, great music montage once again. KRS-One, Step Into a World. And, you know, if we're talking about different documentaries, I mean, I would love to watch a 10-part documentary on this season. I mean, winning 72 games at the time. And, I mean, I didn't go through all of the schedule and their losses, but off the top of my head, I have to say at least four of those losses – that they had either came down to the last shot or was a one possession game. So you're talking about a team that honestly, realistically, like could have almost gone undefeated in the regular season. Like, like, and, and, and it's legit. Like they really could have been like 76 and six, which is like, I can't even fathom that just talking about it right now. And I completely forgot about that iconic cover that they had on New York times magazine with the whole team posing. Um, I actually looked at that somewhere. Yeah, that's awesome. I was, I was looking, just doing a quick glance on eBay. Those are selling for $400. I'm pretty sure you're going to have to add an extra zero to that by the time this episode comes out. But yeah, you know, I've always been fascinated by that team. And, and going back to what you said about Michael justifying his leadership, listen, he came in frothing at the mouth and they came out and won 72 games. So I guess you can't argue with Michael. I mean, the, the, the thing that's so crazy is like the NBA season is so long and if you factor in training camp and exhibition games and everything else, like 
it's it's just a ton of basketball. And looking back, they just kept the pedal to the floor the entire time from training camp through the finals. And they sort of rushed through the playoffs here because you kind of have to get through it. You know, they sweep Miami in the first round. They lose one game to the Knicks in the second round. And then they finally get the matchup they want. You know, the, 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 the rematch against Orlando. And Horace Grant, obviously it's in hindsight, but he knew it was coming. And he says they didn't have a chance and they get swept. And in the, in the, the sort of predictable yet still horrifying moment, you have Jordan coming to the podium after sweeping the magic and quoting the 45 is not 23 a year later, dude, like get that checked out. Yeah, that, that was, um, I remember that was a crushing, crushing series to watch because that was the end of the Shaq and Penny era. You know, they had gone to the finals before. Obviously, we touched on what happened with Nick Anderson in game one of the finals. And, and they come back the following year and the Bulls are, are just a juggernaut and, and Shaq goes to the Lakers. So we get to the finals and it's against the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, you know, the Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Detlef Shrimp squad coached by George Carl. And my favorite thing, we have to talk about this. So speaking of Michael Jordan's competitive problem and, and the slights that he was looking for. So apparently before the finals... George Carl, also a North Carolina alum, is in the same place having dinner as, as Michael and Ahmad Rashad. And when George Carl gets up to leave the restaurant, walks by Michael, doesn't say hi. And Michael cites this as the slight. And Ahmad Rashad, present day Ahmad Rashad says, man, as soon as that happened, I knew the series was over. Listen, man, <laughs> like I've had enough of these, of, of these slights that Michael's making up at this point. Like if George said hi to him, he would have taken it the wrong way just equally. And, and and Jordan himself, you know, talks about it and says about Carl that it was a crock of shit. And that's when it became personal to me. And it's like, I would like to know when any of this was not personal. From what I can tell, every single game, every single playoff series was personal already. There would have, yeah, you're right. There would have been something. And I know there's been, they didn't touch on it in this, but apparently GP like talked shit to Jordan as a rookie once and Jordan came back and wrecked him in their first regular season meeting. It would have been that, or it would have been the fact that Sam Perkins was on that Sonics team. And Sam Perkins was the one who shot gave the Lakers their one win in the 91 finals, you know? Yeah. There would have been something. I, I, I think George Carl did exactly the right thing. I wouldn't have talked to him either. You're going to get wrecked no matter what. So why provoke it? Yeah. And the bulls go up. 3-0 in the series and this is where Gary Payton tells George Carl that you know we have to make a defensive switch like I'm gonna guard MJ and the Sonics will win the next two games and this goes to uh, you know and then we get to another highlight from this episode where uh, it's a recurring theme of present-day Michael watching a video clip of another player being interviewed and Gary Payton is talking about how he was able to slow down MJ. And, and Michael is just so dismissive in this moment, just cackling and laughing, talking about how he had absolutely no problem with the glove. Again, man, it's that competitive problem. I mean, Gary did give him a bit of trouble there, even though the series was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, Jordan doesn't want to own up to any of this. And like his, he's giving like literal belly laughs at Gary Payton's comments. I would have loved to have watched this episode with Gary Payton seeing this for the first time. Because Gary Payton, I love Gary Payton. And 
he is delightful in his use of profanity in this entire thing. Like, you know, and, and I love also, and again, you could have a 10 parter on this finals, but apparently the reason George Carl didn't put Gary Payton on Michael Jordan to start was he needed Payton's scoring. And looking at that Sonics team through a 2020 lens, yo, they had, I mean, they had mismatches all over the place. You had Sam Perkins, who, who was basically a prototypical stretch five. You had Detlef Schrempf, who could shoot from outside. Like, you'd think seeing that Gary Payton was defensive player of the year, first team all defense, maybe you use his strengths and use him to slow Jordan down and figure out how to get offense from other places. But I feel like the 90s NBA was just like, ride your superstar. And even if your superstar was a defensive juggernaut, you're going to use his offense. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, by the time they switched him off, and even if it did make a difference, you're already down 3-0. Teams did not come back from that <clears throat> until LeBron James. Um, so, you know, I don't think Gary Payton was wrong. I think he did get in Jordan's jock and in Jordan's face and in Jordan's head a little bit. So to just dismiss it, I mean, whatever. That's what Jordan does. Yeah, and, and I don't – I mean, I don't want to ask too much of the producers and, and directors in every spot, but, you know, I, I do love this trick of them showing the video clips to Michael, but it'd be nice if they played it back to a Gary Payton or to an Isaiah Thomas, kind of Michael's reaction, right? Because Michael's getting the last word on on all of this, and that As seems always. to be the narrative that, that they're getting – the other thing I want to mention too, and I think Sonic fans will remember this. I think part of George Carl's decision to to not put Gary Payne on Michael was because Nate McMillan was dealing with an injury at the time too. So, so that played a factor as well because I, I don't think Carl could have put McMillan on Michael. So he wanted to conserve Gary. So it's there's just different. There's just a bigger thread to this story than than just right. kind of and, what they show. And things are a little bit different. Maybe if you have Nate at a hundred percent, because Nate was kind of a. I don't know how to say this for a modern audience who only remembers Nate McMillan as a coach, but, you know, Nate was kind of a poor man's um, Joe Dumars a little bit, where just like a tough defender who guarded bigger than his actual size. You know, could have he stopped Jordan? No, because no one could have, but. He would have helped slow him down, you know, and that's the thing like they showed Gary Payton at the time talking about guarding Jordan. And I think his scouting report was spot on. Like he basically said, like, you're not going to stop him, but you could try and tire him out. And that's kind of what he did in those games. And sure, some of it was probably Jordan, whatever, at the end of a hundred games where you had the intensity all the way ratcheted up for the whole thing. Like you're probably starting to get tired anyway, but you know, you would have liked to have seen what could have happened if they did put him on him from the start. Yeah. And it's funny uh, before we move off this point, like we're not talking about like Ruben Patterson, the Kobe stopper or Deshaun Stevenson. Like we're talking about Gary Payton, one of the best defensive guards of all time. And it's interesting to me. I mean, Michael throughout this documentary has given credit to other players, right? Like it's not that he hasn't, it's funny to me that he wouldn't give this credit to Gary. And and maybe it's just in the moment when he's watching that clip that he does not want to give that one ounce of credibility. And also it's interesting too, because you get a scene or a still with Peyton just in Jordan's face. And you realize at that point, like the height difference wasn't even that much. I always think of GP as being like 6'2", like it being not that big. But I think GP was probably closer to 6'4", 
you know, and maybe Jordan is closer to six. You know, I, they were similar enough in size that it wasn't a complete mismatch. You know, and then obviously we get to the game six and it's like, again, like you couldn't script anything like this, but game six is on Father's Day. And, you know, Jordan, the emotions are just all there from the start. Now, I think like there was no way they were going to lose that game. Zero. Zero chance. Yeah, uh, I think even though Seattle had made it a respectable series and avoided a sweep, and it was a 2-3-2 format at the time. So six and seven were both in Chicago. And, you know, Michael famously has never gone to a game seven in an NBA finals. Um, and, you know, I'm not, definitely not taking away for, for the emotional, you know, toll that must have been to have that game on Father's Day. And there's this really cool scene of Jeffrey Jordan holding up a happy Father's Day sign uh, from the press box. But it is a little jarring when it goes from just, you know, Michael, the competitive Michael, to uh, the emotional Michael, because they're two completely different people. Like the guy that's crying on the floor in the locker room after the game versus the one that is in present day cackling and dismissing Gary Payton. Like those don't even feel like the same people to me. I mean, and also like, you know, that team, that Bulls team had never hadn't lost three straight. And I don't think they were going to start by doing it in the NBA finals. So, you know, the outcome of that game, I feel like was almost predestined, but that scene for me was the toughest one of this, possibly the entire series so far, because I feel like you see the still shot a lot, you know, of Jordan laying on the floor in the trainer's room in uniform with the hat on holding the ball, but credit to the producers for this, for hanging on to that, you know, stretching that scene out and just the way he's sobbing. I mean, it is just a guy who is completely overwhelmed by everything, you know, and you have the one person reaching in with a towel or whatever it was like sort of to kind of give him something to hold on to, but also give him a little more privacy. Like, you know, it's also tough where, you're having one of the most emotional reactions of your life on national television or with a cameraman standing there. You know, that harkens back to me to the the earlier scene in another episode where, you know, Jordan saying like, you don't want to be me. And that was kind of a scene where I'm like, yeah, you're actually right. I don't want to be you for this. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Just watching that, um, it was just like uncomfortable. I almost feel like we were, you know, peaking at a, at a very private moment that, that maybe should have just been left for him. Um, but, but it does, it does tell the story, you know, through episode seven and eight, that the narrative of his father passing and him going to baseball and coming back, you know, I think it is very fitting obviously for him to, to win on father's day. And it does put a good capper on this narrative. And then we go back to, the 98 playoffs. And in an earlier scene in this episode, after they beat the Hornets in the second round, Michael's joking around with the film crew around saying, Hey, watch out. We might go undefeated for the rest of the playoffs now. And of course we know two of the toughest series that he's going to go through is coming up. And we literally end with the, the bulls and Pacers tipping off and, and Reggie Miller talking about how, Hey, maybe this is it for Jordan. He's going to retire. Like this is our time. And that's where we leave off. And, you know, with two episodes left, 
you know, obviously not, not a genius guess here that it's going to be the Pacers in episode nine and the jazz in, in episode 10, but obviously with flashbacks, but man, I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, we really could have skipped the Nets and Hornets and gone a deeper dive into the Pacers and Jazz because I just there was not any drama. I know they have to, you know, I guess it's like a completist thing, but they could have just skipped right through the first two rounds is all I'm saying. No, and that's the thing, and that's where we get to like, okay, there's two episodes left now, and we still haven't talked about the 97 season at all, and obviously the 97 finals when they first played the Jazz. And like I said, this 98 series against the Pacers – which made me think about also, you know, you had the scenes in the Space Jam Dome, the, the Jordan Dome, and BJ and Jordan talking about, or BJ talking about them scouting people, but that's just something that goes both ways. And I kind of thought, like, while we have Reggie Miller talking there saying, like, and that was like the coldest Reggie quote. I love that about he was thinking that I'm going to retire Michael Jordan. Incidentally, I love retire as a verb for someone else. That's awesome. I need to use that more often. I need to go retire some people when we're done uh, recording this. But, uh, you know, Reggie going in there and playing against Jordan and playing with Jordan, I wonder what he picked up from that. You get to play against Jordan playing pickup. I can't imagine you don't notice a few things you can use later on. And that series against the Pacers not to you know jump ahead to something that I assume will be covered well, but that was as close as they came. The Bulls almost lost. And if they lose that, I, man. Well, first of all, we're probably not watching a series based on the last dance, which ended in a loss to the Indiana Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. But that, that series was something. I, I love that we get the brief moment when they're showing the tip-off when you catch a glimpse of bald-headed Chris Mullen which is that should have had its own warning before that episode even started. Um, I am not ready to revisit bald headed Rick Smith's, which was basically the family size version of bald headed Chris Mullen. Yeah. Late, late career. Chris Mullen was a look, man. Uh, I think we're going to get some good quotes. Uh, You know, Jalen Rose works for ESPN, right? So, so we're definitely going to get a lot of Jalen Rose and not even to even jump more ahead, but, even the Utah Jazz series, you know, people obviously remember the shot over Brian Russell, but they were looking like they were going to head to a game seven in that one, right? Before that last yeah. magical sequence. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, like that's something that's been, I don't know if I want to call it a recurring theme through this series, but a lot of Jordan's biggest moments and the reason they're big is because they were clutch, right? I mean, it came through, but almost any of those go in a different direction and they lose, you know, like so much of Jordan's history and so much of the mythology could have easily gone the other way, you know, whether it's the shot against Georgetown or the shot against Cleveland or even that series against Phoenix, you know, where, where um, Paxson hits that last shot to win it. They're losing. You know, that, that, that's something where it's like you had Charles Barkley talk about how he knew Jordan wasn't going to let him lose that game. They came within like, what, eight seconds of actually losing it? So, so much of that came down to the wire. And it's interesting to me that like the things that build up the tension and make the victory so much better 
are so close to not being victory at all. So, Russ, what you're saying is Michael just won a bunch of coin flips during his <laughs> career. Should, is that going to be the I'm headline that's that. going to hit the internet? I've never won anything, so I don't want to be the one to say that. I don't want Michael Jordan to like show up in my house, and I, I don't even know what. I don't know what would happen. It's it, it, No, you make a really good point because like things went and, and this is not to discredit Michael, obviously, but like everything, the biggest moments went his way. Like it just did. And, and it could have tilted the other way. And, and we're going to see that. We're going to see that. Like I remember watching that Pacers game seven and obviously we'll save it for the next few episodes, but the Pacers jumped out to a huge lead and it honestly felt like it was over. Like it felt like that was it for the bulls. And I'm not sure how much you felt the jazz were a threat in 98, but by the time they got to game six and they had the lead late in game six, like it definitely crossed my mind that if this goes to a game seven, like do the bulls have much left uh, in the tank and the jazz have home court advantage, right? Yeah. I mean, the Indiana series is the one that stood out to me as being like, man, these guys look like they're on their last legs and they might not be able to do this. You know, it's like, I feel like there were games when Jordan and Pippen, and I suppose Jordan in particular, just resorted to driving to the rim, knowing he would get to the line. And that was something you didn't see as much in the previous championships. And Reggie was something else in that series. And you go back and look at some of those teams. I mean, again, that Pacers team was loaded. I mean, you had Jalen Rose, who was a, Six eight point guard like Magic or like Steve Smith, who also gave Jordan trouble through the years. You had Mark Jackson, you had Rick Smiths, you had Chris Mullen, fellow Dream Teamer. Like that team was a problem, and I think I felt, if I remember correctly, a little bit more comfortable going into the series against the Jazz because they had beaten the Jazz the year before, and I definitely shared the opinion that Carl Malone probably wasn't going to get it done in the clutch. So, I mean, I felt a little better going into that series, but I'm not going to say that the shot over Brian Russell wasn't as big a relief as it was a celebratory moment. Yeah, and and we'll dive much deeper into all that next week when we do episode 9 and 10. Do you have anything else for episode 8, Russ, before we wrap up? Uh, I can't believe I've actually enjoyed Reggie Miller in anything so much. Reggie's commentary in this documentary, I don't know if there's a way to make it translate into his calling games because his calling games is still nightmarish to me, but uh, his commentary in this was great. I I don't know if they can trade him to the studio team and have someone else from inside be an announcer. Maybe they'll be better at it. Yeah, I mean, that's been the biggest thing. And I fully support if you want to find a way to get us an executive producer role for the 10 part documentary on the Jordan dome. I'm in. No, I'm definitely in. Um, it's not too late for them to edit episodes nine and 10. So it's Reggie doing play by play on the remaining 98 playoffs. So be careful what you wish for. We don't want that. We don't want that. That's an interesting (laughs) thing though. Like, you know, is nine and 10 even like, I feel like 10 is going to be finished as it airs. I feel like they're going to be like editing it five minutes ahead of the actual release. We'll see. Yeah. And all I'm saying is Rodman shows up on WCW Monday night nitro after game three of the finals. So we better get 15 minutes of that too. Rodman Um, has been sorely lacking the last couple episodes. 
they've kind of like just gotten away from him. So I'm hoping he plays a much larger role in nine and 10. And I hope, you know, maybe some of the other 97, 98 bulls who haven't been mentioned at all, get a little bit of shine in those. And that does it for us for episode eight. I just want to thank everyone for listening. And as always, you can find After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms that you use to listen to podcasts. And just want to give a quick shout out again to Soul Savvy for giving Russ and I a platform to discuss The Last Dance. And we will catch you next week for our episodes nine and 10 recaps. Thanks a lot. The sneaker game is tough. If you're in it alone, getting the latest pair of hype sneakers is becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.